people vulnerable. They leave their people vulnerable to false gospels. One of the things I find intriguing is that in the Christian landscape, we often find ourselves defending ourselves against atheism, right? We defend ourselves against, yes, God exists. God's not dead. God's not dead part two. God's not dead part three, I'm sure, right? It's the atheists that are the bad guys. They're the ones that we're trying to reach or evangelize or protect our kids from. When we send our kids to college, it's the atheistic professor that we're worried about. But when you read the New Testament, what the authors there are most concerned about aren't atheists, but false teachers in the church. And you find that all over the New Testament. Now these are guys that don't repudiate the Bible. They don't reject the Bible. They use the Bible to teach what they teach. You go, but I believe the Bible. They go, yeah, me too. They're not going, oh, the Bible, all oh, this spaghetti monster. No, no, no. That, that's, that's a whole different ballpark. They're going, yes, God. Yes, the Bible. Yep, I read that passage. They, they read the Greek. They read the Hebrew. They affirm it. They say, yep, that's our authority. But their conclusion is different from what Christians throughout the centuries have considered orthodox or right doctrine. Why does that matter? Well, if it didn't matter, the New Testament pages wouldn't be dripping with it. Don't, don't, don't be fooled by the false teachers. They will take you down a path that will lead you to destruction. And so as a pastor, I feel um, a sort of a parental protection where I, I want to protect you from, I don't want to think you're never going to be, you're never going to be confronted with heresy. So let's just talk about something else. I want to say, if you're ever confronted with a heresy, I want you to be able to say, yes, let's look at the Bible. Let's look at it. Because that's not what it says. You know, Jonestown didn't start out with a pastor saying, hey guys, uh, I'm going to take you far away to some camp. We're all going to drink poison and Kool-Aid, feed our kids first, and as they're dropping dead, we're going to feed ourselves and we're all going to die. That's not how it started. It started as a Christian church. In California. And it got a little weirder and a little bit weirder until it got so weird the government wanted to investigate and he had to get out of there. But it started as a Christian church. That denomination still exists. They're all over. They don't believe what he taught. I remember when I was uh, at Moody, there was a, a church I was attending for a while and there was one man in particular who who was leading small groups and evangelizing people, and people were getting baptized because of this guy's ministry. But it just wasn't a very strong church doctrinally. They were, they were very much about people and connections and relationships and go get them and numbers and let's grow this thing, but not a lot of depth. Until somebody came to him with some deep teaching and told him that unless you have dreams and visions, you're not a prophet. But God wants you to be a prophet Come join our cult. They don't call it a cult, but that's what it was. And he left. Then the church is scrambling. Wait, 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 wait. That's not what the Bible says. What's this guy thinking? You didn't teach me what the Bible says. These guys are Bible experts. So I'm rolling with them. So this is how cults work. It's syncretism, like we saw in Judges. They take a little bit of truth, a little bit of what's not true, and they mix it because if it was all bald-faced lies, you wouldn't listen. But if they mix it with enough truth and they use some scripture verses, 
then maybe they can get you. And when we approach Advent season, I don't think there's anything more basic, more fundamental than the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? Now from Mormons to Jehovah's Witnesses to all brands of Unitarians, their answer is going to be different. Now they'll tell you, we're Christian. We're brothers. We're brothers, you and I. Go straight to, who's Jesus? And you've got to push past the Christianese. Oh, he's the son of God, they'll say. He's the son of God. Oh, he's the image of the invisible God. He's the word. Became flesh. What do you mean by that? Because they don't mean Jesus is God. I want to take you to Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to do something a little different than what we've been doing. Uh, We took huge chunks in the book of Judges. Some of you, we gave you that for homework for growth groups. Uh, And now that the homework is going to be easy, we're on break after next week. So sorry about that. But instead of taking huge chunks of Scripture, we're going to take one chunk of Scripture and spend three weeks in it. I wouldn't do that if I thought I was stretching it. I'm only going to do that because years ago when I preached through Colossians, I had to kind of fast forward through this first chapter, and, and that's, not, that's not always good either. So we're going to take our time, unpack it a little at a time, so that we shore up our vision of who Christ is in order to protect ourselves from false gospels. Colossians chapter 1. He writes his uh, prayer of thanksgiving in the first several verses. In in verses 15 to 20, we have uh, what many pastors and scholars call a Christ hymn, H-Y-M-N. A Christ hymn, a poem, a couple of stanzas. It's probably uh, a, a hymn that already existed or a doctrinal statement about Christ that already existed. And Paul is plopping it in here to go, see, remember this is what we believe. And he's putting it in chapter 1 because everything else in the next several chapters are going to be based on this truth. You think it's relevant? You think it's relevant? He talks about marriage. He talks about uh, how to deal with false teachers. I mean, when he talks about practical things toward the end of the book, it's because he gave you the doctrine of Christ in the beginning of the book. And so when he uh, talks about Christ in verses 15 to 20, he's setting that up to combat their weak view of the gospel. Now, just before we read it, I want you to understand how this is functioning and why this is relevant. The problem that they had is they had a weak view of what the gospel is. I mean, how many of us right now, if I said, what is the gospel? It's real short, real quick. What's the gospel? Give me me five or six sentences. Do we stumble? What what do we put in there? What are the the bare bones basics? Okay. If we're fuzzy there, that's dangerous. How do I know that? I want you to just flip to chapter 2 real quick. Chapter 2. Because this is why he's writing this letter. If you look at verse 8, for instance, he says, See that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, 
according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. In other words, if you don't know who Christ is, you'll be duped by philosophy. Liars, they're just straight up lying to you. Or just human tradition. Well, my, par- my parents were Unitarian. You know? Human tradition has a place, but it doesn't supplant Christ. Who is Christ? You see it in verses like if you drop your eyes down to chapter 2, verse 15 and 16 and 17. Look at these verses. He says that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them. He emphasizes this in this letter because apparently the Colossians, they had some, some kind of the, some, something about the false teaching that they were receiving had something to do with demons and spirits and rulers and principalities and how you have to be careful with them. Verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You think of cults that say, oh, do you keep a kosher kitchen? You're not obeying the Bible. It's in the Bible. It's in there. How come you're not following all the Old Testament rules? How come you're not following the feasts and the festivals? Why not? You said you believe the Bible. Well, because we see those as shadows. We found the real thing. So again, the conversation goes to Christ. If it doesn't get to Christ and who Christ is, you'll be lost in the, uh, I don't know why I don't do the Old Testament. And so he's saying, uh, without this Christ Him in chapter 1, you'll be subject to false uh, doctrines, chapter 2, verse 8, verse 15 and 16, uh, weird teachings about spiritual, spiritual forces and authorities, in verse 16, Old Testament stuff. Uh, verse 18, no one, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. You know what that is, right? Beating your body. Your body's bad. My spirit is good. My spirit will be better if I make my body bad. They whip themselves, cut themselves, hurt themselves, starve themselves, that kind of stuff. He says, don't let anyone disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. See? Weird stuff, right? The worship of angels going on in detail about visions. Sounds like the guy I was just telling you about. Puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, etc., etc. So these are the kinds of things that Paul, that Paul is trying to protect the Colossians from. Verse 23 of chapter 2. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. It's easy for us in here to be like, <laughs> those cults, they're so dumb. But, but for some people, they come first and it sounds wise. They don't come and say, well, the badge that says cult member, you know, so-and-so, cult member. It sounds wise at first, but it's a promotion of self-made religion, verse 23, and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, there's no life change to be had in there. You know why? Because it's a false gospel. Doesn't matter how nice it sounds or how wise it sounds, it's not the true gospel. And if it's not the true gospel, your life won't change. And so who is Christ? That's that's everything. That's not for professors teaching systematic theology in some stuffy college somewhere. For you, right now, sitting right there. Who is Christ? You need to know. You need to know. The other reason why this hymn is important for the gospel is is because of what comes right before it and what comes right after it. Look at verse 14, or verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 13. Right before he breaks out this 
quote-unquote him. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What's that verse about? The gospel, how we got redeemed, how we get transferred from darkness to light. That's, that's, what, that's why this hymn is here. And then the hymn finishes in 20, and then look at verse 21. And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So the verse right after the hymn, what's that verse about? The gospel, how we were at enmity with God, hostile towards God, and now he made peace with us. He brought him to him. He reconciled us to the Father. So why is this hymn important? Because if you don't have the hymn, you don't have the gospel. If you don't have a, a vision of Christ, a, a, a right doctrine about who Christ is, and you don't have the gospel. And if you don't have the gospel, you're at enmity with God. You're still hostile toward him. You're lost. You aren't saved. You think you're saved. You could be churchy. But you're, you're just ready for a cult to snatch you up. And so a poor vision of Christ leads to a poor view of the gospel. A poor view of the gospel leaves you open to more, more information. And that leads you to a false gospel and the false gospel disqualifies you. We're not being mean when we say Unitarians and Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons that they're lost. We're not, we're not being mean. We're not being divisive. We're saying you don't have the answer. The answer is Christ, and you're making Christ into something that is not the answer. You took Christ and changed it into something else. We're not being divisive. It's what the gospel is. And how do we know a false gospel disqualifies us? We just saw that in chapter 2, verse 18. You follow down that road, and you're disqualified. What qualifies you is not how smart you are. What qualifies you is not how, how many uh, Bible passages you've read or how many sermons you've sat under or what church you go to. What qualifies you is your personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. And your faith contains knowledge you can't just say i believe christ whoever he is you need to know who he is in order to place your faith in him otherwise it's not faith what do we believe about christ so that's why three weeks on 15 to 20 let's start at verse 15 who is jesus christ he is the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We're going to look at 15 to 17 today because there's so much to unpack. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, when it says he, it's picking up on the word son 
from verse 13. Who, who's the he? Paul? I know John? Who's, who's he? God in general? He is Jesus, the Son, from verse 13. Okay? The Son of God who delivered us and in whom we have redemption, he is the image of the invisible God. Now the word image there, uh, it might remind you of Genesis, the opening chapters, right? That, that man, male and female, were created in the image of God, right? Let us make man in our own image, our own likeness. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the same Greek word here. It's not like it's some different word. Yep, that's image. That, that's what an image means. When they pull out the coin, whose image is there on there? Caesar's. Well, then give to Caesar what Caesar's. That image, it means a representation or a likeness of something else. Okay. So what does it mean that he is the image of the invisible God? Well, I'll tell you what a Unitarian will tell you. And by the way, Unitarian, what is that? Easy way to remember it. They're not Trinitarian. Right? Trinitarians believe that God is one God, one substance, one essence, three persons. When we baptize someone, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We're not baptizing them three separate times in the name of the Father and then another God and then another God. No, one baptism, one Lord, three persons. The Trinity. Unitarians don't believe that the Spirit and the Son are God. Okay, so that's a Unitarian. So, for example, what would a Unitarian tell you? A Unitarian is going to tell you he's the image of God. That doesn't say he's God. If it said it was God, he would just say he's God. Why would it say he's the image of God if he's actual God? He's not actually God. He's the image of God. Remember the form of wisdom, things that sound right at first until you dig. First of all, this isn't the only text that we have on who Christ is. But what it says is still indicting of their position. Why? Because the point is not just that he's God, but how he relates to creation. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's trying to explain how Jesus relates to all of mankind. And how does he relate to all of mankind? Why does he have to relate to all of mankind? What is one of the biggest problems man has always had? The fact that God is invisible. We can't see him. We can't approach him. We can't go up to him. He's an invisible God. He's spirit. So he needs to be made visible in some way for us to have contact, for us to see and touch and, and, and know who he is exactly and not just a fuzzy idea of who he is. And so this tells us he is the image of the invisible God. And if a Unitarian says, well, image like in Genesis 1, you and I are created in the likeness of God, that's different. And we would say, well, Christ had to come in the flesh. <laughs> that's what Christmas is about. He had to bear the image that we bear, otherwise he can't pay the price that we deserve. Correct? So he has to bear the image. But an important difference is it doesn't say uh, use the same language as in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we are created according to the image of God. We are created in the likeness of the image of God. What does this say? He is the image of God. He, he's not like God. He's not a reflection. He's the image itself. He's the image in the likeness of which we were created. So you read Genesis 1. 
We were created in the likeness of the image of God. We were created in the image of God. And Paul here is saying, Christ is that image. Christ is the pattern after which you were created. And then he's going to tell us Christ is the one that created you. So when it says he's the image, it's not a fuzzy reflection. It's speaking of his humanity, but not just his humanity like everybody else. Because hopefully none of you would come up to me and say, Lucas, that was such a great sermon. You are the image of God himself. I'd be like, yeah, I'm taking your membership card and we're going we're gonna to do that again. Why would we call somebody else? You're the image of God. Wow, she's so beautiful. She's the image of God herself. Wouldn't you be like lightning, right? No, we're not the image of God. We're created in the image, but Christ is the image himself. So he lays it out in the beginning that Christ is the image of the invisible God, meaning that this is the one that made the invisible God visible. Christ is the very visibility of God. He's God. No human, no man, no just plain person is the visibility of God. But Christ is. And so how did Christ, or why is Christ this way? He's described as the firstborn. The firstborn of all creation, the end of verse 15. Firstborn of all creation. What does that mean? Well, the word can mean a couple different things. One, in a family of six children, which child was born first? That's the firstborn. (laughs) That's not rocket science, right? Can it mean that? Can it mean that? If he was just a man, is he the first man? Is he the first Israelite? Is he the first male? Is he the first prophet? Is he the first priest? None of those are firsts. It can't be literal. How can it possibly be literal? He wasn't even close to being first. Well, we have a second option. As you read through all the Old Testament, what privilege went to that firstborn child? If somebody was the firstborn, what did they get? Everything. Everything. Dad dies, he's it. Firstborn. He gets everything. He's supreme. Well, that fits. The first option didn't fit, but that one fits because the whole hymn is talking about Christ's preeminence, his supremacy. And so he says Christ is the firstborn of all creation, not because he was firstborn out of all creation, but because he is the supreme holder of rights over all things created. He is over all things Why is he firstborn? Because he was a good man? Because he was a philanthropist? Because he did nice things? That's what they're going to tell you. Well, he, God made him the firstborn. He was a regular man at first, but then God chose him to be the firstborn because he was so good. That's nice. That's not what it says. It says, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, for, I'm giving you the reason, Why? Because by him, all things were created. That's why. It's not like God the Father created things, and then one of the creations, he's like, you know what, you're my favorite. I'm going to make you leader of the pack. That's great. You know, I'm going to just put you in charge, because you're my favorite. No, he's saying Christ himself is the one that created all those things. 
him all things were created. So the problem that Unitarians and all these guys have is that Christ doesn't exist until this right here, until the advent. Before that, Jesus wasn't. What is he, an eternal being? He's not an eternal being. He's created. But if he was created, who created all the things that came before him, right? This is saying he created all things, meaning he had to pre-exist the nativity. He had to. He created the nativity. He created Mary. So all things were created by him, and that's why he's the firstborn. He's over all things, not because he was chosen to be. He's over all things because he created everything. He's the creator. Now, how does that fall on Jewish ears? You read the Old Testament. In the beginning, who created the earth? Who created the heavens and the earth in the beginning? God. And Paul is saying, by him all things were created. How could that possibly fall on any Jewish ears in that time? Or anyone exposed to the teachings of the Jewish apostles and, and, and not have a rub? How, how would they say, oh, right, 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 you don't mean Genesis 1, you just mean in some other way. No, I mean Genesis 1. It was Christ. All things were created by him. And so some would object and say that Christ didn't create literally everything. Now here's where they might get a little slick. For by him all things were created, and then you get specific, a little bit more specific each time. In heaven and on earth, that sounds like everything to me. Visible and invisible, still sounds like everything to me. I can't think of anything that's, in, that's not one of those two things, it's either visible or invisible. But then he says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And then he says again, all things were created through him and for him. So here's what they're going to tell you, okay? They're going to tell you, all things doesn't mean all things. All things just means thrones, dominions, rulers, and powers. All of those, visible or invisible of those. Okay? Who are the rulers and powers, if we're talking about spiritual rulers and powers, who are the rulers and powers in operation when Adam and Eve were tempted? Who are the rulers and powers in operation on earth, roaming to and fro the earth, that gave Job a hard time? Who put them in charge? Jesus? Did Jesus put them in charge? He wasn't born yet. Of course he put them in charge. But it's because he pre-existed Christmas. That's why Christmas is special. Christmas isn't special because it was a random baby, and then look at the special things he did. It was already special because he pre-existed it. And so thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, yes, spiritual, demons, angels, it doesn't matter. Visible ones, invisible ones, it doesn't matter. Everything that you've been taught, he's telling the Colossians. Everything that you've been taught about how special, there's special visions. And to get those special visions, you have to worship an angel or you have to beat yourself to a point where a special spirit comes to you. No, 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 no. You don't report to spirits. You don't pray to spirits. You don't overly think about angels. What are their ranks, who they are, let's categorize this. I mean, it's fun to think about, but if don't overly think about it. Definitely don't make any doctrine about it, because that has nothing to do with the gospel. All you need to know is that Christ is over all those things. He rules them because he created them. That makes him boss, right? King, sovereign, the firstborn. All things you created through him. And for him. So 
all things, I think, encompasses more than just spiritual rulers and authorities. But even if it only encompassed that, it still speaks to him being God. Who else could have created Lucifer and demons and Michael and put him in, in charge? Who, who could have created those positions except God himself? For some of you, I hope that maybe right now this is like, ah, oh, this feels like a lecture. That's okay. That's okay. Take notes. One day if this hits you in the face, go to those notes. Go to Colossians 1. I want you to be, I want you to be equipped. Verse 17, I love this. I love this. Because Paul doesn't let you give up, right? He's like, oh, well, all things means this. Well, image means that. He just keeps, he just keeps punching the heretic in the face, so to speak, right? Like, look, verse 17, and he is before all things. Now, that can mean a couple things. That can mean he's before all things, like in terms of prominence, importance. He's before, you know, if somebody tells you, I feel jealous because you keep putting this thing before me, right? Before me in importance, priority. It could mean that. But according to the guys I've been reading, the New Testament scholars, uh, they're, they're saying, listen, the word before there almost always means in time. That movie came out before the sequel, right? Worshiped at church before lunch. Before in time. And if, that, and if that's true, that just reinforces the point, doesn't it? He was before everything. He had to be if he created it. How else can he create it if he wasn't before it? In order for these cults to get to the doctrinal heresy that they're at, they have to deny his preexistence. That's why Paul is hammering it. He is before all things. That matches a few verses that we're going to throw up on the screen so we don't have to jump around too much. The fact that he's before all things, we find that in John 1, 1, right? You all know this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. Now, who's the Word? You keep reading John 1, it's Christ. Obvious. He preexisted. He was in the beginning. What beginning? How far back in the beginning? As far back as you want to go. He's there because he was always with God. And, in case that's not enough for you, he was God. You look at verses like uh, John 17, 5. This is great. John 17, 5. Now, Father, this is Jesus praying, right? His high priestly prayer. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Christ knew who he was. He had a glory that existed before the world was even a thing. Let's achieve that glory together, he's praying. Then Hebrews 1 Verse 2, in these last days he has spoken to us, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. How else, how else can we read that? Christ is creator. And the creator is God. Christ is God. God didn't pick one of the created things to then go back in time and create everything? No, before the world existed, Christ created it because he's God. So many churches have gone astray by losing that point. So he describes that Christ is over all things because he's creator. 
He's before all things, yes, in priority, but also in time. And then look, before all things, verse 17, and in him all things hold together. Now, I know some guys will say, look, all things just meant authorities, right? It just meant thrones. It just meant rulers. Okay, let's say we grant them that. Then we get here, and he's still saying all things. He's before all things. All things that exist, he's before them. And in him, all things hold together. Why? If, if it was still about thrones, that wouldn't make sense. Oh, thrones are held together. Powers, demons, and angels, they're held together. They still, to this day, hold together. That doesn't make sense. When we think of things that hold together, we think of how earth is sp- a spinning globe in the middle of nothing. And how is it just hanging there? And our view of God is very different from ancient views, right? With Atlas holding it up on his shoulders. You know, if I was back then, what I would have asked, who's holding up Atlas, right? How, how, how is the moon just hanging there? How is the sun just, it's right there. And every day, same spot, same spot right there all the time. Who does that? I don't think he's talking about rulers and authorities. He's kicking open to all things, literally, at the molecular level, at the cosmological level, however big you want to get or however infinitesimally small you want to get, it's held together. Why do electrons do that? Why do, why do protons behave like that? Christ holds it together. That's why. And so Paul's saying he's the one that is responsible for all things being intact today. How do you know that your next breath you're going to draw is still oxygen? I mean, the things that we take for granted, they're there because Christ holds it together because he's not just someone that created the world and flicked it into existence by, but he stays there and he continues to hold it. Not all things were held together, but they hold together now. That's Christ. That little baby in the manger was holding the manger together in his deity. That's amazing. That's why he's before all things. That's why he's over all things, because he's creator. He's the supreme sovereign who holds all things together. And then here's, here's my favorite, guys. It's not just that he pre-exists everything. It's not just because he was before everything that makes him supreme over everything. He's the very object for which all things were created. All things were brought into existence for what reason? Why are you here? Why is there a world, a globe, a sun? Why does our galaxy provide life and not all these other ones? Why this planet and not the other planets in the solar system? This one's too hot. This one's too cold. It's like Goldilocks, right? Oh, and this one's perfect. Why is this one perfect? Because it was prepared that way. For what? For him. Says it. In the end of verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. I want to explain to you why this is important, right? Somebody might tell you, well, God created it for the special son of his, the special, the special boy that he adopted. You're such a good boy. And you, know, it's just you, you heal the sick and you help the people and you never sinned and you're so good. I'm going to make you special. And I knew I was going to make you special so way back before the world existed I created everything for you. 
Is that what God is like? That's not what God is like. I'm going to show you just a couple quick verses to show that. Isaiah 42, a couple stops in Isaiah and then one in Romans. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, I'm Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carve idols. I mean, that's just one verse of many. I do not share my glory. No one else shares my glory. I am it. Everything is me. Me, 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 me. And we talked about that recently, right? Earlier this year. That that's not, that's not uh, conceited of God. If I tell you, I want my life to be about me. Why don't we do what I want today? I don't like what you're wearing. Change it. It's not my favorite color. I would be conceited. Why? Because all things aren't for me. Why is God not conceited or arrogant for saying that? Because all things are for him. And if he doesn't like something, change it. Because he's boss, right? And all throughout the Old Testament, we get verses like that. It's his glory. We'll go to the next one. Isaiah 43. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made for me. Genesis, creation in Genesis is for me, Yahweh says. This is God speaking, God the Father. This is me. This is for me. All things are made for me. That's why I made them. Now here you have Paul saying, well, Christ made them for him. What is he saying? Christ is God. That's the only way it's consistent. Romans, last one. Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like what we just read, except here it's talking about God the Father. So when we get to this passage, the same author, wouldn't you think Paul would make a clarification? I don't mean the same thing. I mean something different. He's not making a clarification. He's saying, no, this is, this is on point. Christ created all things, and all things were created for him and the only way the bible could be consistent if all things were created for christ is if christ is god because god has made it abundantly clear i don't share that with anybody i don't share that with a creator uh, i mean a creation a created being i don't share that only god himself gets glory but if christ is god it's intact so christ created all things for him we miss that when we think that things were created for us things were created for people for us to enjoy. We're like God's little pets and he created little wheels for us to have fun in, you know, and little things to crawl around in and just changes the bedding for us and he watches us and it's for his amusement, but really he does it for us to have a nice little life in the cage. He created us for him. And when we have that as a central tenet of our doctrine, then we understand, look, man, this can't mean anything else except Christ is God himself. He's the creator from Genesis 1 and following He's the one that receives all the glory in Romans. He's God. And so God doesn't share his glory. It's like the uh, Westminster Catechism, the first question you may have heard. Uh, What is the chief purpose of man? To glorify God. 
and enjoy him forever. That's the purpose of man. And Christ is God. And so we worship him. We don't worship him like he was the best one of us. We don't worship him like a hero. We're going to give him a purple heart. Great job. It's more than that. He's more than that. Why is that important? It's important because if you have a lower view of Christ, then you have a shaky ground for your own salvation. This is why the cults had success. They'd come in and they'd say, are you, are you really saved? Are you sure? What about that time you messed up real bad? I mean, you think God just forgets that? He can't forget it. He's just. He's holy. You need something else. Christ kind of opens the door, but you need something else. Christ paved the way by being so good. You have to be good. So beat yourself or starve yourself or go to more Bible studies or read more Bible, or learn the biblical languages, or go to seminary, or go be a missionary, or go feed orphans. Go do something. You have to do something, but if you don't do something, you're not going to have the gospel. You need something else. You need a vision. I had a vision. This guy had a vision. Let's go around the table. Everybody had visions. Oh, you're the weirdo. You haven't had a vision, huh? Look at this verse. He had a vision. Look at this other verse. He had a vision. And you start feeling all weird, like, man, that's true. I never had a vision. Here I am. I'm struggling in my marriage. I'm supposed to be growing in Christ, but I feel like I'm stuck. I feel like I'm not moving anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. You know what? Maybe I'm not really saved. Or maybe I have a piece of the pie, but it's not the whole thing. And here's this, this person or these people that are giving me that extra that, you know, my pastor never told me. Why have they been hiding this from me? Oh, organized religion. They're all conspiring to just keep you, you know, funding their parking lots. Something like that. Go to the Bible. What does it say? What does it say about who Christ is? Cut through all the nonsense. If I'm at a lunch with somebody and they want to talk about dreams and visions and philosophies, who's Jesus, man? Who's Jesus? I don't want, I don't want, to, I don't want to do a three-hour lunch about the thing you dreamt, dreamt last night. Let's, let's talk about Jesus first. If we're on the same page there, then we can talk about your dreams or the shape of snowflakes or the cloud you saw yesterday. We can talk about that, but we're going to talk about Christ first. And if we're not on the same page about Christ, then I don't really care what you dreamt last night. It doesn't really matter to me. I don't care what I dreamt last night. I don't have a dream that's scary, and the next day I'm like, man, am I saved? Ooh, that really scared me. I did something in my dream I never thought I would do in real life. Maybe I'm not actually saved. You know why I don't have that paranoia? It's not because I trust in my stick to itness in my mature spirituality. I'm so good. No, if that, if that was the basis, I'd be paranoid all the time. I wouldn't know if I'm saved right now. I'd constantly be repenting and getting saved again. But the reason why I'm not spiritually paranoid is because I know that my reconciliation to God and my peace with God is not based on what I bring to the table. All other cults have to... Uh, Demote Jesus to promote us. Now we can do something about this. It wasn't like Jesus was God. He was just like any one of us. Except he did it. Showing us the way. Now we can do it. See? Now you've entered a gospel where you're going to do it. You're going to try. Whether it be with dreams or good works or whatever it is. And you will end up disqualified. 
Because when you stand before God and he says, why should I let you win? Your answer better not have anything to do with your track record. Your answer needs to be Christ's track record. I know it's not fair, but what Christ earned, he gave it to me. And what I earned, Christ took it. It's not fair, but that's the ticket. That's the gospel. So this is important for the Colossians, and it's just as important for us. Because if we don't have this strong view of Christ, then we don't have Christianity. We don't have the gospel. I'm hoping that maybe a thicker message like this today, okay, will seep in. Take some notes, spend some time in Colossians 1 and some, maybe some of the other verses we had. If you need them, I'll email them to you, okay? To prepare ourselves to talk to other people about who Jesus is. Let's all just get along. All, we all have the same goal, right? All our same goal is just help the world and help people and love people. No. My goal is to glorify the Father. And I can't unless it's through Jesus Christ. And it can't be through Jesus Christ. If he's not God, it's not divisive, it's truth. 